Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is the terrific novelist and journalist, Danielle Alarcón. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available. The best way to support me and my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Danielle Alarcón in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. How are you? Hanging in. I re recharged a little bit. I needed this weekend to recharge just because it was a pretty intense trip, as you know, um, to the three U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifiers and thrilled to be there for all of it um and obviously the world cup draw on friday which we'll talk about in detail here in a second but uh i'm hanging in and you broadcast how many games on saturday just two <laughs> just uh, two yeah just two yeah i did uh chicago and fc dallas i finished nil nil and then i had uh inter miami for the uh tv commentary uh, on Saturday night, a game that was delayed by two hours due to lightning. So I guess that's maybe where the discrepancy was. Is uh, yeah, I, I I was delayed by two hours due to lightning. So uh, it was a joy to just sit there with Ray Hudson and kill time as he tracked his <laughs> college basketball bets. That was a, that was a particular joy of the evening. <laughs> I would think working with Ray just must be a blast. Oh Am my I wrong? god! Well, I mean, it's honestly it's the off-air conversation that's better, right? Because I mean, on air, you know is you know cooler cooler than a polar bear's backside you know like it's 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 delightful to just hear those and figure out what you're going to do with them but off air it's just it's it's great conversation particularly when he's screaming at kansas to try and cover the four point spread against villanova <laughs> oh, i'm glad you're getting some entertainment because it's not coming from inter miami <laughs> but uh, moving on <laughs> um Let's talk about the World Cup draw, because the U.S. not only is in the World Cup, they now know their first three opponents in the tournament, and they are game one on the first day of the World Cup, either Wales, Ukraine, or Scotland. Then the day after Thanksgiving, 2 p.m. Eastern, USA, England, might be a tasty one there, is an <laughs> understatement. And then the finale against Iran, Lots of storylines there as well, including on the soccer field with the U.S. having lost to Iran in World Cup 98, one of the crazier games I have ever covered in my life. Um, what were your thoughts watching the World Cup draw take place and seeing the U.S. draw these teams? Well, I, I do find fascinating kind of how the immediate reaction is setting the expectations for the U.S. at getting out of the group. And while that is the hope, I, I do sort of wonder where teams kind of at the level of the U.S., kind of above and below, even even the way that Mexico has played during the World Cup qualifying period, kind of get off thinking like, oh, we can just look at Iran, that's three points. We can look at Wales or Scotland, and you can definitely get a result there. And it was interesting to kind of hear an outsider's perspective. Now, the England versus USA dynamic is going to play out uh, quite a bit during these next few months uh, ahead of the World Cup. And I think England looked as the USA as the most desirable draw out of pot two. 
but I, I just don't know where it's like, all right, going to beat Iran, got to get to the group stage. Like, no, I think every game for the U.S. at the World Cup is a slog. I think most games at the World Cup are a slog. Like, other than France, Brazil, maybe the way that the Belgians have been in the last couple of World Cups, I don't think anyone can look at a World Cup matchup and go, oh, yeah, count that as even like Argentina that won Copa America like I think they're 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 in for a fight in their group I think everyone's in for a fight so I think you have to give immense respect to all the opponents whether it's you know any of those European qualifiers Wales you look at their names on a sheet and maybe it's not the most impressive but they are always it's one of the few national teams where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts because of how well they play together um the Scots are going through probably their best period as a nation for a long time. And then, I mean, Ukraine, if they get there, what an emotional story that would be if they could even play games and if they can get to this World Cup. But I, I just, I just, I treat every opponent with the utmost respect. And so I'm simultaneously in my head thinking it's going to be a huge task to get out of this group, but also thinking towards that England game and thinking, well, could the U.S. give England a go? And I think they can give anyone a go. Um, sure. The question is, is do they have enough to get out of this group? Yeah, I, I think... Part of it is I feel like I should begin every discussion of the U.S. draw with a disclaimer. Teams are good. You know, it's not like some like any team in the World Cup is not good. So I feel like I should say that every time just because I feel like this draw went pretty well for the U.S. doesn't mean that I think these are going to be easy games. But I look at in relative terms who the U.S. could have drawn and and feel like Look, of the top seeds, I think it would have been worse for the U.S. to have drawn Brazil or Argentina simply because that would likely have meant two additional European teams in the group plus, you know, one of the top seeds in the tournament. And so by not drawing one of the South American teams, I think that helped the U.S. Um, the fact that it's England, you knew you were going to get a good team. England's fantastic. Uh, this is a team that got to the last World Cup semifinals, got to the final of the Euros last year, could win this tournament. So I, I think that's a tough team. It's going to be fun, though, looking ahead to this, looking forward to it, having months of discussion leading up to this game. Um, and then I look at, uh, at Iran and first team to qualify from Asia, good team, good players, and yet... Could it have been a, a, an even tougher team that they, the U.S. had drawn? Yeah, of course. So um, that's how I'm looking at this, how I'm processing it. And based on how the draw worked, that the U.S. was in pot two, the U.S. is seeded such that they are expected to advance from this group. And, and we'll see if they're able to do it. And obviously, there's more playoff games to come, and you find out who that first opponent is. But... Um, but overall, yeah, it's, it's exciting. And I think one big takeaway overall for me is the way FIFA does this draw now by seeding all of the teams and not just the top eight, there's really no group of death. That term can go away. And it's pretty hard to get a group of death, to be honest. Uh, and that didn't happen. And I like the fact that these groups are all evenly balanced, more or less. And you don't feel like someone just got kind of screwed by a bad draw. Yeah, it was funny how, uh, you know, so many people that I talked to, like, the the phrase group of death has become so associated with the World Cup that I almost, like, I think every assignment editor at every soccer publication has been trying to figure out 
what what's the group of death? Can we call it a group of death? Like group of death is such a subject of conversation that I don't think people realize. And honestly, Grant, I did not realize it until I read your uh, Substack three reactions column to the U.S. Uh, World Cup draw that the seating had changed. That the notion of group of death did die a slow death um, without anyone kind of recognizing it. And while I do think that there are some incredibly balanced groups, I actually think I went into the draw kind of ready for the hot take of whoever is drawn against Canada has the group of death or whoever Canada draws, they're in the group of death because they're really good. And I actually think that group is very competitive. When you look at how you know Canada will will, will match up, uh, you know even against Morocco, for instance, I think Morocco could be a really tough one. Croatia, who got to the last World Cup final, Belgium, who spent the last few years as one of the number one teams in the world. I think it's a really strong group, but Canada and Morocco have enough to prove that maybe you can't really call that a group of death. But yeah, I think there's real balance. And to be honest, I and and this is you know part of the backdrop is you know the Qatar story, how much you separate the joy that you experience at the World Cup. And the issues that lie underneath. I remember John Oliver like did that was like one of his first last week tonight pieces eight years ago ahead of the 2014 World Cup um, was how much can you enjoy something that you kind of know is a bit backwards. Um, and that unfortunately was the feeling that I left this draw with. This I think all these groups are awesome. Like you look at the opening day, maybe you don't get fired up for Qatar and Ecuador, but you can get fired up about Senegal and the, and, and the Netherlands. I think that's a really good game to open oh, this yeah. tournament. So I think every group has, is incredibly well-balanced, will provide plenty of kind of intrigue, and I don't think that just because the top 16 teams were seeded in pots one and two means that those are the 16 teams that are going to get out. We're going to get surprised. And you have to be ready for, you know, the, the storyline is that France, uh, you know, they're, they're the holders, and four of the last five holders went out in the group stage. Are we ready for the fact that France might go out in the group stage? I don't think people are. Um, so I, I think there's going to be all kinds of surprises because of the balance in these groups. Yeah, it's all really good points. I already went through my big Google calendar for all soccer things, uh, events, games. I put all the games in. It was fun to do that. Um, and just to sort of see laid out before me the match days, it's going to be hectic, man. It's going to be four games every day for quite a while. No days off even between the group stage and the elimination rounds. You know, they've got to get this World Cup done in a short amount of time because that's part of the agreement to allow it to take place in the club season. And there's not going to be much time at all, about a week before or when teams, clubs have to release the players and the start of the World Cup happens. And the U.S., by the way, will be playing on the first day. So it doesn't look like they're going to be able to play any friendlies, which they might have been able to do if they were planning on the third or fourth day of the World Cup for their first game. But it was interesting hearing Greg Berhalter because uh, you know, U.S. soccer arranged media access for a reaction from Greg Berhalter, Christian Pulisic, Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney. And, you know, like it was just interesting to hear what they had to say, including Berhalter talking about sort of logistics and the months ahead and how June he said he's going to bring in his full U.S. team for there's going to be four games. There's going to be two friendlies, presumably against good competition. And then there's going to be the two Nations League games. And so that's going to be June. And then September, there's going to be two friendlies, presumably against quality opposition. And that's basically it in terms of 
games that the U.S. has between now and then. He said also that they were planning to have a camp in Dubai before the tournament started in Qatar, and they're scrapping that now because they have to play on the first day of the tournament. So, um, you know, that all is interesting. Hearing um, Christian Pulisic talk about hearing from Mason Mount uh, was the first person who gave him a call after USA Angling came up, and so there's going to be a lot of familiarity there. And it was fun to see how excited these U.S. players were as well. But uh, is there anything else about that it's intriguing to you about sort of the logistics or, or what's coming up in the months ahead for the U.S.? I, I just think it's really interesting that, you know, Greg Berhalter, who seems like such a detailed planner, is kind of at the mercy here of a, a, a war, really, to figure out who his first opponent is going to be. Because right now, Ukraine are tentatively scheduled to play Scotland in June, and then they'll follow up the winner of that game with Wales. Um, but who knows if Ukraine are going to be able to field a team? How long is FIFA going to give Ukraine a chance to field a team before they just say, you're out? Which would be incredibly harsh and would not be received well, but... You know, this tournament's in November. Like, we don't know what the situation is. So I think, you know, maybe you just get to, maybe he just is going to have fun scouting five teams as opposed to three, and you'll have full detail, certainly have plenty of time, uh, full detail plans on all five potential opponents. Um, I'm just really fascinated to see which of those three teams it's going to be. Um, because you, if you look at Ukraine, their World Cup qualifying campaign has been basically a series of draws, which is why they're in the playoffs. Um, and, you look at you know some of their talent. Like, I think they have the best talent of any of those three teams, um, but it hasn't always gotten to the ceiling. But again, if they get there, if that's can you imagine the opening day, the primetime game, the two o'clock kickoff is Ukraine on this massive okay. stage? I I kind of feel like the U.S. would be walking into a buzzsaw there. Like I I would not give them honestly much of a hope to get a result in that game if it's Ukraine on the opening day, just because of what it means them on the world stage after uh, what's happened here. Um, but We'll see about that. And then, you know, we, we already talked about Wales and Scotland, but I think the, the real interesting dynamic here is that the U.S. won't know for some time who they play first. And that, I imagine, is just a bit unwieldy to handle. Um, all the other stuff, I mean, you talk about timing. The MLS season will be ending. It's kind of one of the rare times where the MLS winter schedule will hurt the MLS-based players because I actually think we're heading for a really good World Cup in terms of quality. 10 or 11 right. games before the tournament as a warm-up as opposed to after 38 games where everyone's exhausted. The European-based players are going to have a really good World Cup. But does it hurt the MLS guys who have just finished a 34-game season? Um, so it's just sort of those timing things. But um, I, I have found most interesting is the reaction to the group and the U.S. We got to get out of this group and, and all that. Like, I just don't know where you can find the confidence in this national team to say that they are definitely going to win a game at this World Cup, you know? Like, they have a lot to prove. They're much younger than everyone else. Like, there's still so much to be determined that you can say, oh, they're talented. But getting from talent to results at the World Cup is a big step. Yeah, good points. You're a little, you're a little more down than I am about this, I, but yeah. that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, I, in terms of other stuff happening, um, there was a, a pretty busy weekend, though I think you know, club-wise, but it was a little overshadowed by sort of all of the focus on the World Cup, and, and I get that. And there, there weren't that many sort of really big games over the weekend. Uh, Juventus lost to Inter at home on Sunday afternoon here, and uh, that 
sort of hurts Juve's chances, I think, of, of rallying to maybe be a Scudetto candidate. But um, other than that, you know, Liverpool and City both win. And I think we should talk about Liverpool and City sort of moving forward because obviously very tight now at the top of their Premier, Premier League race. And they've got big Champions League quarterfinal opening legs midweek. And then they play each other next weekend. And then that's going to have a huge impact on the Premier League. And then they play soon after that in the FA Cup semifinals. And so you're going to be hearing a lot about Liverpool and City even more than usual in the coming days. Yeah, and you look at the results in the weekend. City were comfortable winners away at Burnley, but uh, Liverpool had to sweat a little bit in their home game against Watford. And I think Jurgen Klopp took a little bit of a chance in rotating the squad a little bit because he knows how big these upcoming games are. Can you get away with it in a home game against a team in the relegation zone um, and and maybe rest some of your guys? I think he brought on. I think he brought on Sadio Mane late. Yeah, yeah, he, he brought Mane late in for Salah and look got to a victory. But Watford had some chances there to get goals. But I, I continue to find incredibly impressive what Liverpool have done since the start of the year. They haven't lost and. They've done so despite the amount of rotation that they've had to do, despite the Africa Cup of Nations, despite multiple World Cup windows in which you think about what Salah and Mane went through in the playoff, playing against each other, playing against each other in Africa, incredibly important internationals in the midst of a winning streak that has you on the brink of potentially leapfrogging Manchester City to the title. But, I mean, rare... I, we talk all the time about a playoff system and all that, but rare is the opportunity that you get for this late in the season, what is it, 30 games into the Premier League season with eight games to go that two teams are going to play, and you can basically say that the winner will probably win the league from there. I mean, maybe if Liverpool wins it, it's only a two-point gap, and, and, and we'll see how that plays out. But if City win and they're four points clear, it'd just be hard to see without a game between them how that gap gets made up. But fascinating stuff here, and all the while... I mean, Liverpool, in some ways, the Champions League is always a bit of a free hit for them just because they've won it six times. And yeah, you'd like to win it, and they're certainly good enough to win it, but they, you know, for the most part, don't like they, they, they care about domestic titles. They've won more European Cups than they have domestic titles in the Premier League era. So, I, I, but for Manchester City, that's not the case. Like, they have to give everything into the Champions League. Um, and, and they kind of, you know, played a similar strategy by starting Americ Laporte and, and Nathan Ake as their center backs in the game against Burnley. Like, it's, you know, try and get your strongest guys out there uh, for the game against Atletico Madrid in the week. But Man City have to give everything to both competitions, and we'll see them at full pelt in April run, run into the season if they can give enough to win all of these games because if they want to win out, the Premier League, that's eight more games. If they want to win out in the Champions League, that's five more games. If they want to win out in the FA Cup, that's two more games. If you want to go 15 matches unbeaten, go ahead. But uh, that's an incredibly tough slog for them, uh, given how important each and every game is. The one thing I would slightly push back on there is I don't think Liverpool is taking Champions League less seriously than Man City is. Um, and nor are their fans. I mean, I, I feel like Liverpool has shown that they have the depth and the quality to be competing at an extremely high level on every front. And so I certainly don't expect them to, to not do that in Champions League. They got a pretty favorable draw in the quarterfinal with Benfica, to be honest. Um, and so City has Atletico Madrid. These quarterfinals happen very quickly, by the way. So first leg this week, second leg next week, and you'll know who's in the semis. But I, I honestly feel, and I've been asked recently, 
who's my favorite for the Champions League? And I say Liverpool. I, I just feel like you know, thin margins, obviously, between them and City, but they've been even better than City now for quite a while in terms of results and performances. And so I feel like this is a Liverpool team that might be Jurgen Klopp's best team there. And yep. they're going to have to prove that by, by doing things that his previous teams have also done. One thing they haven't done is win Champions League and the Premier League in the same year, though. Mm. So I, I think they're a real... I think they got a great chance to to win two, maybe even three trophies here, um, and and really put themselves in sort of the pantheon of great Liverpool teams that we've seen. So we will see. But um, I'm very much looking forward to the coming weeks here with Liverpool and Man City going head to head. I appreciate though. I I, I, I appreciate though uh, your your pushback on. Liverpool not necessarily taking the Champions League lightly. I only kind of mean that from like a narrative standpoint where like mm-hmm. Manchester City still have that weight of not having won it. And I think yeah. that kind of puts a little bit more pressure on them. But I, I think you're right to say that Liverpool are, you know, I, I think you'd have to say just based off of the way that the draw works that Liverpool or Bayern Munich are the favorites to win because they have the easier semi, the, the easier quarterfinals. You can't really say Manchester City are a favorite and they've got to play potentially Atletico, Chelsea, two out of the three of Atletico, Chelsea, and, and Real Madrid, whereas Bayern Munich have to play Villarreal and then probably Liverpool. Like, it's one easier opponent. So I think that side of the draw is probably where you can find uh, your your favorite. But yeah, I mean, I think Liverpool have a great chance to win this competition. I just don't think that, like, if they lose it, it's as devastating as, you know, every time Man City mm-hmm. go out, it's, are they ever going to do this? Is Pep Guardiola right. ever going to win the Champions League in Manchester City? Gotcha. Um, I do want to talk Christian Eriksen briefly because maybe the best story in the sport right now that Christian Eriksen, who's Brentford just obliterated Chelsea in the second half over the weekend, is scoring goals. He's producing assists. He's scoring for his national team again. He's playing again. The fact that he's actually even playing anywhere, much less club and country, it's pretty incredible because we nearly lost Christian Eriksen a few months ago in the middle of a game. And to see him doing what he's doing is just really inspiring, I think. And to do part of that is scoring a goal at what might have been the site of his funeral, if not for, uh, you know, obviously those incredible medical workers that resuscitated him and brought him back to life. Um, he did it in Copenhagen. He scored a goal and set that crowd alight. And then he comes back to the Premier League as, I mean, obviously having achieved these milestones, scored goals and, you know, played well for Brentford. And then you're reminded that Christian Eriksen, when fully healthy, is an incredible threat and in some ways, like, looks out of place in this Brentford team. Like, not that Brentford have been that bad over the course of this season, but, I mean, they took a risk, right? Because one club had to be the club that said, we're okay with the risk they were taking on here, bringing Christian Eriksen into our team, because Inter determined that it wasn't for them. And I completely understand that, given what they probably went through on that day. But Brentford took the chance, and in the four games that he's played, Brentford have won three. And so... They've, you know, basically gotten themselves from kind of being out there to be sucked back into a relegation fight to they're going to comfortably stay up. 
And I believe they only signed Erickson until the end of the season, and that allows the possibility for Erickson to go somewhere else. In some ways, the romantic in me kind of wants him to stay at Brentford and see if he can help this team kick on, but we just know that he's at a level above that. So the idea that he's back and playing and you're reminded of the threat that he is, uh, as well as overcoming the odds, it's probably the best story in football this year. Yeah, no, absolutely incredible and just feels good to see him out there doing what he's doing again. Um, Another thing I want to ask you, and I'm just throwing this out there, is Chelsea safely in the top four based on what we're seeing, the home loss over the weekend to Brentford, and the fact that, you know, Arsenal's playing pretty well, Spurs had a really nice win on Sunday. It's possible they could catch Chelsea. So I'm looking at their I'm looking at Chelsea's run in, and I just don't see enough there to really put them off. They're away to Southampton after the Champions League, which, you know, Southampton are capable of summoning a performance. Um, but I, I just, I don't believe enough in either Spurs or Arsenal. We're recording this, obviously, before Arsenal play on a Monday night that represents a game in hand on Chelsea at the moment. Uh, they're away at Crystal Palace. I just don't believe in those teams to be consistent enough. But I do find interesting that over the course of the last few months, they have gotten closer to the top four battle than to the Premier League title battle. They're 13 points right. off of Liverpool. They're 14 points off of Manchester City. And they're five points clear of Spurs and Arsenal. And so the fact that Chelsea in the league can't seem to mirror what Chelsea do in cup competitions. They're in the semifinals of both of the domestic cups. They're into the quarterfinal of the Champions League. And honestly, I would not be surprised at all if they won it. They just seem like a team that's that can get up for these cup competitions. Thomas Tuchel can get up for these cup competitions. But... Tuchel has not been able to get enough of a tune out of them in the league. And, you know, before getting hammered by Brentford, it was the eight draws that they've had that were probably the biggest right. reason. Um, and, and I've kind of talked before, and I still believe that I just don't think they have enough of a mechanism to reliably score goals or have a reliable goal scorer to be a threat in league play. You have to have options you know are going to get goals every week or a system of play that you know gets chances every week. And Chelsea have just struggled for that, partially because of injuries, partially because the Lukaku transfer has just flatly not worked. Um, but yeah, I, I think if Spurs and Arsenal were a bit stronger, they could. They could give this a real go. Um, but I think Chelsea will just about have enough to get over the line. I also am just curious to see how much the stress on the club that mm-hmm. it's been going through recently with this is going to be a sale any day now, it sounds like, to a new owner. But all of the stuff, the uh, cost-cutting, maybe not as much as they first announced, but still cost-cutting around the team and travel and, and those sorts of things might have some sort of impact on the players and the coaching staff in the next few weeks. And well, I think we'll find out most of that in their league play. Not so much in the other stuff, but um, it's a good point you're making is like Chelsea in the league just isn't the same team as Chelsea in cup competition. And they're still alive in in a lot of areas here. So um, that will be an interesting one to follow. And And, 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 and before before we kind of like completely bury them, uh, you know, or, or, or kind of completely downplay their form before the game against Brentford, they had won 12 out of 13, and the only lost was a was the League Cup final to, to Liverpool on penalties. So I, I think in some ways, I mean, any one result, I mean, it's a, such a shock, 4-1 at home to Brentford. Um, but I, I think a lot of this narrative was cast before 
you know, this weekend or, you know, like what's happened with the ownership situation. They've just struggled to put together a consistent run of results in the league, particularly in the first half of the season, which is why they're in the position they are now. And frankly, catching City and and Liverpool is so tough because they don't lose. And so they were like kind of all going neck and neck and they would drop some results and then City and Liverpool just took off and Chelsea just haven't had enough to keep up. By the way, I I, I still remain amused that Todd Bowley might win the the bid to buy Chelsea having failed to acquire in his attempt the Washington Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was also linked for a while to be the owner of Inter Miami as well. Um, and that and that one that one didn't come together. Um, I, we, I need to dig into this more, and we should probably talk about this on a forthcoming episode, but I've kind of found fascinating what's happened with the Ricketts family and how strongly yeah. the Chelsea fans are protesting against the owners of the Cubs. And yeah, I mean, there, there is a story there with, I believe, the, the patriarch of the family having some publicly racist comments, but um, still, it, that, that's a level of noise that I, like, I've been surprised by, and like, I want to dig into, I need to read a few more articles and figure out like, what exactly is at the root of this trouble, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the ownership situation is very American-tied, because it's an American investment bank that's leading the sale and the acquiring of all these bids, there's a lot of Americans involved in the bidding, this is very much an American story all of a sudden. Yeah, definitely is, and then the only other question I want to put out there, Barcelona is Barcelona again. They beat Sevilla on Sunday. Great goal from Pedri, who is just... just, He seems like he's getting better every week. Um, And it makes you wonder a little bit, is there any chance, even a small one, that Barcelona could catch Real Madrid in La Liga? Oh, it'd be tasty, wouldn't it? It would be tasty. (laughs) But uh, I think think Barcelona just dug themselves too deep of a hole. I think in the league, Real Madrid are consistent enough performers. Karim Benzema has been... Probably the underrated player of the season. Again, just doesn't have the same star power that Neymar, Messi, Mbappe, Ronaldo have. And so he just doesn't get the same hype, or even like Erling Haaland. But Benzema has turned in that kind of performance this season. He has been that instrument. I think without, without him... Real Madrid would be competing with Barcelona for this title. They would have dropped several more results, but I think they're consistent enough. Um, but I, I, I do kind of want to point out with, with Pedri play, playing well, it's interesting that there were some benefits to the year-long swoon that Barcelona have been in because if not for the economic sanctions that have been very strongly imposed against them, not sanctions, but just like the economic realities of the club finally catching up, they would never have probably given Pedri the kind of opportunity they gave him at such a young age. Maybe he was always this good of a prospect and he would have slowly worked his way into the team, but he very quickly became, like, he played, like, the most minutes in the world in 2021, uh, just became a Spain regular, a Barcelona regular, and was needed in every single game. And I just think that it might have accelerated the timeline of a few players, look at Gavi as well, who I believe signed a contract right. extension in the week. Uh, some young players that came through to Barcelona at a quicker rate than we've seen really from them in 10, 15, years because of the dire straits that they were in. We've also learned Xavi's a coach. He really is. And there were doubts about that before he came or when he came to Barcelona. Like, you know, he was was in the Qatari league. Is that really the preparation he should have? Is he walking into this nightmare situation at, at Barcelona? And it's, it's pretty incredible what he's done there. Um, And, you know, I think the sport, I've always sort of been a Barcelona guy, but I think like the sport needs a healthy Barcelona. And th- that club 
made some of the worst decisions on spending, ended up a billion dollars in debt, and that's their fault. And that's just totally messed up. But they're in a heck of a lot better position now than they were just a few months ago. And it's very impressive what Javi's done on the field there. Um, and I think he could have a, a fantastic long career as the Barcelona coach. Um, and then is there anything else you want to get into? Any... Uh, Anything else in the soccer world? I, I mean, I, you know, I, I always like to, to give a shout out to what's going on in, in MLS. Uh, Philadelphia, four wins from five to start the season in the Eastern Conference. Probably one of the surprise packages is the New York Red Bulls, who get a shocking late win away at New England, who find themselves 12th in the East after setting the MLS oh. points record. Um, I mean, it's early, but uh, the Red Bulls, I mean, th- it's it's been interesting to track the progress of the teams whose managers called out their transfer business in the offseason. <laughs> you look at, you know, Gerhard Struber with the Red Bulls basically said, I was expecting five players and I got two, um, and they're doing well. Charlotte, I think, have probably been a bit better than most teams or most people would have expected. They did lose away at Philly, but they've got a couple wins on the board. They've not quite been the disaster a lot of people would have thought. And then you look at San Jose, who are rock bottom of the Western Conference, and uh, there's more comments that come out during the international break. It seems like the Matias Almeida uh, departure is being hastened, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and even LAFC as well, I think, deserve a shout here as well. Uh, they win away in Orlando, go across the country. 13 points from five games for Steve Chirundolo. Um They made some good additions in the offseason to bring in MLS experience, and it's worked. Uh, they've been a really strong uh, they've been really strong starters, and I was not necessarily expecting that, given the inexperience of Chirundolo and kind of the number of ways that could have gone wrong, but fair play to them. Uh, they're, they're top of the West and a real threat to win the league again. Yeah, I think there are a lot of concerns about, well, Steve Chirundolo didn't win games last season as a coach. He hasn't been a head coach very long. Um, you know, he was with Las Vegas last year, and they're winning games now. So, um, you know, early returns are that that was a, a good move by LAFC, which... I was under some pressure with that choice. Very interesting one. Um, yeah, in MLS, look, there's there's so many games, so many teams, and it's still very early. But I think there's going to be a lot of good storylines to follow this season uh, as it goes on. But uh, Chris, you've had a very, very busy week, a very busy weekend. So really appreciate you taking this time to talk today. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Danielle Alarcon. <laughs> Our guest now is Daniel Alarcón. He's a New York-based, Peruvian-born novelist, journalist, and radio producer, the co-founder and host of the Radio Ambulante podcast, a writer for The New Yorker, and he also teaches at Columbia Journalism School. He recently won a MacArthur Genius Grant, and he hopes to be remembered as a better-than-average attacking midfielder in his prime. Daniel, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. It's good to be here, Grant. Um, Lots to talk about here. We're recording this on Friday, April 1st, coming out Monday, April 4th. I have to admit, I was hoping when we scheduled this talk that your Peru would still be alive for the Men's World Cup, and they are. How are you feeling about the chances of Peru making its second straight World Cup? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of giddy at the possibility. I mean, I, I for the first, uh, you know, 30-something years of my life, I, I never... Uh, I, I, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't even know that Peru could be in the World Cup. I didn't; it, it never occurred to me. And I would grow. I grew up hearing these, these tales of the great Peruvian teams of the '70s, and um, and I compared them with what I was seeing on the pitch from my team, and it felt like a, 
like my, 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 you know, like those, uh, tall tales that your, that, that your grandparents tell you, you know, it just didn't seem real. Um, and if, if, uh, if, if 2018 was unlikely, I think 2022 is even more unlikely. Um, and, and it's, it's incredibly exciting. When you say more unlikely this time around, why? I mean, I think, you know, we had, uh, Paulo Guerrero. Paulo Guerrero is our talisman and he, carried us scored really important goals in the in the qualifying in 2018 and now he's he's not in the team Farfan is not in the team these kind of um these these really important uh and uh, you know players who were carrying us they were they were above average uh above the average what we have now is a team with no european stars um a team that is hardworking, a team that uh that listens to their coach and believes in their coach and the coach believes in them. And, uh, and against all odds, here we are, we're still there. You know, we, 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 we won in, in Colombia. Um, we won important games that people didn't think we, we, sh- we should have won. Um, we should have tied against Uruguay, but we were robbed. Um, and all this matters. I got to say, because there's, you know, if there's nothing in, in Peru that unites the country, like the national team, it might be the only thing uh, that, and like, ceviche you know um and and so it's nice to have this one um this one thing that everyone believes in you know peru had a big game last tuesday against paraguay won it two nil now they're in the intercontinental playoff in uh in june i guess that's going to be against either australia or united arab emirates mm-hmm. um in in terms of how do you how do you consume a Peru game, like a big game last Tuesday? Nervously, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm too, I was too nervous to go to a bar and to see it with Peruvians. Um, too nervous to, to you know, but my, my wife is Colombian and Colombia was playing simultaneously. Um, and it was only, only one of us was going to make it, you know. Um, and uh, so I always keep an eye on that game. At least uh, if, if the, Colombia makes it, that'll be a consolation for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, I watch it. I watch very intensely. I put on my Jersey. I text with my, my cousins in, in Lima, um, texting with friends, Peruvian friends around the world, um, texting with Peruvian friends who are braver than I and go to the bars here in New York uh, that are full of Peruvians. Um, but I'm just, a you know, I, I watch the game very intensely. I assume your wife is following Colombia as a fan. Like, did you have to mute your celebrations after Colombia got eliminated the exact same time? No, I think she had made her peace with it. She had made her peace with it. Um, so no, I, 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 I was pretty confident because we were playing at home and, you know, Grant, I know you've been to stadiums all over the world and seen some, some wonderful, um, expressions of, of, of devotion from fans to their team. But the relationship that the Peruvian fans and the Peruvian team has with its fans is really something to marvel at. If you haven't been to a, to a game at the Estadio Nacional in Lima, I really, I really recommend that it should be on your bucket list because it's just an, another another level of 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 devotion and support and this symbiotic relationship between the team and its and its supporters is is just something to to experience. When I I was in the stadium the last time we qualified for the World Cup, which was the first time in 36 years, the first time in my in in what I could remember of my life, you know. Um and when that first goal went in, when Fatfan's goal went in, uh, you know, there were people weeping in the stadium, like, like, you know, grown men crying and not like one, like several <laughs> around me in shot in, in, in eyesight. 
And and the other thing was that, uh, and I got in trouble for this because I put in an article I wrote about this game, I said that, you know, the the, the Kiwis, had the, the, the New Zealand players had never seen something like this. And people were saying, well, you know, some of these, you know, uh, players from New Zealand play in the Premier League and they play, um, but I don't think it's the same. And I'll tell you why. I mean, the an hour and a half before the game, the stadium was full and singing. Mm-hmm. And they didn't stop singing until an hour and a half after the game. And the New Zealand players came out onto the pitch and they were all taking video and they looked just astonished by this uh, presence. Uh, the night before the game, the, the, U, the, the Peruvian Air Force flew over the New Zealand um, hotel and they painted the underside of the wings red. They painted the flag on the wings of the airplane to, uh, uh, and they said it was a supersonic welcome to our visitors, you know, but of course it was like when they were taking a nap to prepare for the game. Um, and, and fans are outside the stadium, outside their hotel singing all night. Uh, so they couldn't sleep. Um, and this, this, this is just, it's another level, you know, and it, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Um, and I, I hope to go see a, another important game of the, the national team there at, at some point soon. I would love to. I have been to Peru. I have not been to a game there, unfortunately. My second country is sort of Argentina. So I've mm-hmm. certainly seen a lot of games there and the passion right. is, is big in Argentina. And I, maybe one similarity I, was, I wanted to ask you about is the the radio culture around soccer in particular in a few places in the world i've noticed it in spain it's still very big and in south american countries the radio culture seems to be very big still there's a lot of like big interviews with like players and coaches take place on the radio in, yeah. in some of yeah. these places and For sure. why do you think that still is huh that, well uh, you know, my, my father's first job was as a soccer announcer on the radio in Arequipa, mm-hmm. which is like the Peru's second city. So uh, I have given this some thought. I mean, the radio in general is very big in, in Peru. Um, uh, you know, when there's an earthquake or a political scandal or some, some kind of big news that rocks the country, um, you know, many Peruvians turn to RPP, RPP, which is Radio Programas del Peru, which is like the big, uh, the big radio station, national coverage with you know correspondents everywhere, and you know, um, so it ha- it has a hallowed place. My my, uh, <laughs> there's a funny story when I was a kid. Um, my uncle um, lived in a town south of Lima where they didn't broadcast the big games. And he would drive up to Lima and watch the games on TV at my cousin's house and record, uh, watch the game on mute and narrate it. And then at halftime, he would turn the volume up and pretend he was in the booth with the, with the actual national uh, uh, broadcasters. And he would interview my cousins as if they were breathless fans at the game. Uh, and they would have to, you know, sort of act like they were out of breath. What'd you think of the game? You know, and he would say, oh, I'm a fan of this team. And I thought, blah, blah. Um, and this was... You know, the, the, and then he would drive, you know, straight after the game, drive back to his hometown and play that tape of the game on the radio. Um, so it was obviously, you know, in the, in the early 80s before internet, before, you know, national cable TV and all that. But um, it's just a special way. I mean, I, I, I even remember was, as a kid, my dad saying that uh, TV announcers don't do it well because they, they, they lean too much on the pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't describe it with the poetry that, that he remembers when he was a kid, uh, you know, 
he tell he tells me that the after lunch entertainment would be that they, they would ask him to narrate a goal uh and so you know it'd be all the adults you know sort of like digesting their food uh and uh and he would stand in front of them and make up a goal for them that always ended in you know peru scoring on brazil or something unlikely and um I don't know. Maybe we're just a culture that 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 uh, that can transform words into images um, easily. So you grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. What was soccer like for you in those days? <laughs> well, I, I have a vivid memory of my my coach, uh, really lovely man, Coach Barrett, who um, came to practice one day because he was just sick of us chasing after the ball all the time. And he gave us these, uh, uh, it was a duffel bag full of VHS cassettes of, of European games. And he gave us homework. You like, you each have to go home and watch one of these games and let's look at how they're spaced out on the field, you know? Um, so it was like a, you know, Bayern inter, you know, uh, you know, a champions league game Well, before the champions league, you know, um, European Cup games or, you know, Premier League games, which, you know, I've seen Premier League games from the 90s and they're terrible. They're not, they're not particularly um, uh, graceful. Uh, you know, it's not the Jogo Bonito, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my, my soccer culture was both the like typical American suburban, you know, uh, orange slices at halftime and like the, the team talk that involves no strategy. Um, and this um, uh, snobbish sense of superiority because I came from a country that actually knew about soccer, you know? And, uh, when I'd go to Lima, I'd play with my cousins and get destroyed. Um, but I would come back feeling like, see, I know how to do things that these other kids don't know how to do. I'd been to stadiums and seen real passion. None of my friends had ever seen a soccer game played by adults, like not even like a, a college team, you know, like it just it just in where i grew up there was no soccer you know to be found um you couldn't see it on tv back then um you know i think the first time i saw um soccer on tv in the united states was the 86 world cup mm -hmm. yeah it's it's fascinating to me that the u.s has gone from this country where it was one of the worst countries in the world in which to watch soccer on television to now one of the best and yeah. it's very easy to to watch soccer from any any place it seems like um, one person you went to high school with is a former podcast guest, uh, John Green, yeah. who also a prominent novelist, also a soccer guy. How close were you with him in those days? And do you talk soccer with him? Well, he's, he's a, I'm an Arsenal fan. He's a Liverpool fan. Uh, yeah, we still talk. Uh, we were friends in high school, good friends. We were, you know, writing nerds and, and, and literary nerds, uh, together, uh, I played soccer. He played uh, ultimate frisbee, I believe. <laughs> um, but you know, it was a it was a, a, a very typical suburban uh, adolescence in a lot of ways. And we um, we were close friends, but not not sporting friends, not soccer mm. friends. We were writing friends. We were book friends. We we would talk about books and writing and our dreams of being novelists. Um, but now we we you know I'm very careful not to talk shit about Liverpool because, uh, because we haven't beaten them in many, many moons. Um, and I, I, I like Klopp and I respect what they've done. And I almost feel like the model for what Arsenal needs to do is, is a Liverpool model of their development, slow development over the last several years. 
into a contender uh, by signing smartly and developing a team culture. And I sort of think Arteta is doing that. Um, but no, I try not to, to, to talk too much shit because it has never ended well for me. <laughs> How do you choose Arsenal? I mean, you know, that's the thing that's so... Uh, it's very random, I think, for a lot of US fans. Uh, I chose Arsenal because I'm, per- I'm, I'm immediately drawn to teams that wear red and white because I'm Peruvian. Um, I, when I started watching Arsene Wegener felt to me like, like reminded me of one of my favorite college professors. Yeah. You know, uh, I thought Cesc, uh, in his, in his prime as an Arsenal player was, was a beautiful, a beautiful player to watch. Um, and so, and I liked that they, that it, it felt to me cheap to pick a team that was winning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then to seal the deal, uh, at a, at a Christmas, uh, like, um, what do you call those 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 parties where you give a gift and everyone trades gifts? Secret uh, like Santa. A, yeah, kind of like a secret Santa, but is it the white elephant thing? Is that a th- term? Have you ever heard it's that? It's been so long since I've done one of these. <laughs> the where, where there's like a bunch of gifts that are really bad. Like I remember that that party, someone drew a face on a mango and that and wrapped it, and that was the gift. Um, but anyway, a friend of mine, Federico, was uh, was given or selected uh, a got a gift that was an Arsenal jersey, uh, a long sleeve Arsenal jersey. But Federico's uh, like six seven or something gigantic, and I'm you know five seven. So it didn't fit him, and so he 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 knew that I had this uh, affinity for teams in red and white. So he's like, here, take it, and that was it. Then I became an Arsenal fan. It's like I have the jersey, I have no choice, um, and I don't I don't. In spite of all the suffering that has happened since, I don't regret it. Do you go to soccer games here in New York? I'm a Red Bulls fan. Yeah. Oh wow! Like. What's your sense of the Red Bulls, and is the, is it difficult in any way that you know this team has existed in some form or other since the start of the league in '96 without winning an MLS Cup, and New York City FC just won after a couple of years of existence? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm Peruvian. I'm used to cheering for the underdog. I'm not. It does not phase me at all. Um, it'll be all the more sweet when we win. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, there was no chance of me, there was no possibility of me being an NYCFC fan. Uh, even if I like individual players, even if they have a Peruvian on the team, uh, they they wear that awful light blue jersey that I just don't like. And uh, it just it just wasn't possible. The Red Bulls, again, a red team, it's just so easy for me. Hi. You know? Do you follow the U.S. men's national team at all? Do you feel any connection? I do, I do, yeah, I do, absolutely. Uh, I went to the to the game in uh, Columbus. Um, was it Columbus when we no Louisville? Where was it where we beat Mexico? Cincinnati. It was in Cincinnati. Sorry, sorry. I, my apologies to the entire Midwest. <laughs> um, yeah, I went to that game uh, with a friend, uh, with a couple friends, and uh, I, I do, I do, I, I like this team. I think we we have a, a young team. It's really talented and hungry. Um, I think it's an embarrassment that we didn't qualify last time. Uh, I think everyone agrees on that. I, so I don't think that this is redemption so much as just like the bare minimum that a team of this with these resources should be accomplishing. Um, as you know, I was in Orlando. I almost went to the Panama game and then I was like, you know, I could get tickets, but I was like, we're going to crush Panama. 
you know it it just seemed to me like uh you know as we should it's like beating up on on a on a very small team and i i my, my heart goes out to the panamanians uh and i was like we're gonna qualify anyway i'm not gonna spend a thousand dollars to go to this game <laughs> it wasn't really that much i knew it was sold out and and i never have to buy tickets so I, i'm kind of not good at suggesting yeah. ways to get them yeah, no, it was uh, it was pretty expensive. It was, pre- I mean, once I factored in like the 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 Ubers and the like, getting to the stadium, the you know, like there's four of us in the family, you know, uh, it would have been a lot of money. Are your kids into soccer, and where are their rooting interests? My oldest uh, is 16, and he was very into soccer, and the pandemic happened, and. Um, as you know, a lot of like adolescents had a hard time in, in the pandemic and our, our son had a very hard time, uh, and, and lost a lot of the things that made, that brought him joy and soccer was one of them. So in the aftermath or whatever you call this phase that we're in now, where it's sort of, we are, and we aren't in a pandemic, um, he's starting to recover that, uh, I'm taking him to play on Sundays when we can, uh, he asked me to, he wanted to go back to the stadium to go to see Red Bulls games. He was the one pushing for us to spend a thousand dollars to go to the U S Panama game. Um, uh, so yeah, he, he, he does enjoy it. Um, my youngest is into Ninja warrior. Uh, and so he is tolerates soccer, uh, but isn't really super into it. And, and my wife, um, goes through phases of, of loving the, the Colombian national team and phases of like currently where, She's just not interested. What do you think sort of about where this is headed with soccer in the United States? Because even today, literally the most popular soccer team in the United States is the Mexican men's national team. Right. And that probably shouldn't be all that surprising um, considering all the demographic patterns and immigration and all that stuff. Um, Are we going to get to a point someday where the U.S. national teams... Uh, have a bigger following in their own country, but I don't know. It seems like it's growing all the time for the men's and women's national teams, and especially with people in the United States who feel part of their identity is tied to rooting for teams from countries of their roots. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really worry about that. I got to say, I mean, I, I was at the stadium in, uh, in 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 Cincinnati, and the. The passion was there, you know. I go to uh, MLS games, and the passion is there. I went, you know, I remember walking around Atlanta and seeing, you know, just neighborhoods in Atlanta with uh, Atlanta United signs. The new team in was it Nashville that that you know filled the stadium. It's gonna. I mean, there are if you're an optimist about soccer in the United States, there's ample um, signs pointing to growth, passion. And, and, and development, not just at the fan level, but also in the player level, you know, like the, the, I, I look at the kids that, that, that my son plays with are so much better than I was, um, at that age because they've seen more soccer, you know, um, they've been around it more. They, they understand, ta- they play FIFA. They have b- better understanding of tactics even, you know, um, I, I, I'm, I'm an optimist in, in that regard. And also, you know, I think about like the, by far, I mean, like by far the most active chat that I'm on is my New York, you know, pickup soccer chat, which has like 150 people that I don't know if they work at all, but all they do is share soccer memes and, and, uh, and crack jokes and 
you know, talk about the weather on the weekend and where we're going to play. And like, it's an endless, uh, hilarious and beautiful conversation that's completely international and completely American at the same time, you know? And I think that that's, that, that, that's, I think to me playing soccer, um, in a, in everywhere that I've ever visited, I try to play soccer, you know, I've played soccer in, in Ghana and in Mali, I've played soccer in, in, um, in Morocco and Peru and Colombia in the jungles of Peru in the prisons in Peru. I've played soccer all over the United States, everywhere I go, I try because it's always such a great way to get to know a place. And, um, and playing soccer in the United States is, is, is wonderful because you meet so many different kinds of people from all over the world and you share, you know, this, this love of the game and you, you put a couple passes together and put the ball in the net and, and you hug a stranger. And, uh, and those are the kind of beautiful moments that, that, that I, that I hold really dear. You know, I've made great friends on the soccer pitch. I've made great friends at the stadium, you know, at the Red Bull stadium, like one of my closest friends, uh, is a guy that I'd exchange emails with. And then we decided to buy tickets together to, to the games. And we, you know, he, we became super close friends, you know, just cause we watched a couple seasons together sitting next to each other. Um, and that's that, that's really important. That's really important. Th- those those are the kinds of things that, um, and the reasons why I want to take my kids to the stadium is because I know that that's what my grandfather did. You know, my mm-hmm. grandfather took my father to the stadium every weekend, and my father couldn't because we were growing up in a place where there wasn't any any opportunity to do that. Just to wrap up here, the the World Cup, the Men's World yeah. Cup, is coming back to the United States, which is co-hosting in twenty twenty six. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it, it makes me, it, it's like I'm a kid again, you know? I mean, it's a dream. I, I was here, obviously, in in, um, in 94 uh, when we hosted. I got to see uh, a few games. Actually, that's a very important game for me because I, I think that's when I realized I was American. I was at huh. the Columbia-US game, and my sort of deeply held I, uh, sort of self- uh, view of myself was that I would always cheer for the Latin American team. And I remember Prop 187 had just been passed in California, which is this really racist law against Latinos. And Governor Pete Wilson, who had passed the law and pushed for the law, was op- inaugurating things at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. And uh, he started to speak. They were like, Governor Pete Wilson. And the entire stadium, which was mostly Latino, booed him. So you couldn't hear him speak at all. He spoke for like a minute and a half. You never heard a word he said. Uh, and I was like feeling this very intense sense of like pan Latin solidarity. Uh, so I was cheering for Colombia, uh, and then the U S scored and then the U S scored again. And at a, at a certain point in the game, I realized, and it was very confusing for me, Grant, um, that I was cheering for the U S. Wow. Um, uh, and I was like, Oh wow. And, and the stadium was cheering for the U S you know, because the stadium was not Colombian. The stadium was mostly Mexican American that were at best uh, ambivalent about the U.S., but wanted to see a World Cup game. And then the stadium was cheering for the U.S. because they were the underdog. And honestly, they're, they're, I have a complicated uh, relationship with this country because, um, because I pay attention. And, um, but there are a few instances where you get to cheer for the United States as an underdog. Uh, and I, I think I hold those dear for that reason because it's, 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 uh, it sort of fits my DNA to cheer for the underdog. And... Uh, um, you know, in particular, this uh, to host a World Cup is a great honor. 
And, uh, and I hope it'll be a great tournament. I hope the U.S. goes very far. And I hope Peru's there as well. Danielle Alarcon is the co-founder and host of the Radio Ambulante podcast, a writer for The New Yorker, and he teaches at Columbia Journalism School. Danielle, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Danielle Alarcon, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a freer paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.